Here in Boston, snow, but in Mariental, Namibia, 100 degrees in the shade. It's Monday, December 31st. This is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. New Year's parties are underway around the world, but in India, celebrations have been muted. Many there are mourning the death of a young woman who was gang-raped in Delhi. And later, a friend of the late Adam Yauk remembers the Beastie Boys' humor and his involvement in the Free Tibet movement. I laughed as hard as I worked. I think never before in the history of the world has so much fun been had while doing activism and movement building and trying to fight injustice. Also today, tired of champagne? How about a tea of mountain orchids? All that's coming up, but first news. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, demonstrating commitment to global economic, social, and environmental stewardship. Learn more in the 2012 Medtronic Corporate Citizenship Report, online at Medtronic.com, and by Focus Features with the new film Promised Land, starring Matt Damon and John Krasinski, from the director of Goodwill Hunting, in theaters everywhere Friday. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. New Year's Eve celebrations in India are somber this year. The army has canceled all official celebrations, as have the states of Punjab and Haryana. Hotels, clubs, and celebrities announced they would be canceling or toning down planned events. The reason for this, and for a lot of soul-searching today across much of the country, the death of a woman who was gang-raped on a bus in Delhi two weeks ago. The attack sparked huge demonstrations. Protesters have been angered by traditional attitudes toward women in India and calling for toughening of laws on violence against women. The public outrage continued today. Ananya Vajpayee is with the Center for the Study of Developing Societies in New Delhi. She attended two protests this evening commemorating the life of the young gang rape victim. The first one was just anybody. You know, I mean, it was, I think, genuinely unorganized. And it was uh, people of all different walks of life and all different classes of society. And the second gathering, the one at the university, was was very different. I mean, it really felt like a community you know, I myself knew dozens of people, a lot of familiar faces. What's been the tenor uh, today at, at these vigils and protests? I, I mean, last week there were thousands of people out at numerous demonstrations, a lot of anger. Would you say that the outrage has deepened over the past uh, week or so? The earlier protests were going on while this woman was still battling for her life. She was in a hospital in Delhi at first, and then she was moved to a hospital in Singapore. Right. And so she was still alive and all these these gatherings had a very different tone and tenor while she was still alive. But now she, you know, she passed away. They held a funeral. And this is all after the fact. I mean, people are reflecting over something which has already occurred. You know, I mean, she she is gone. Now, the question that everybody is asking is how should we consolidate and how should we make something of the momentum that has gathered over the last two weeks? There is a sense of outrage, there is a sense of shock, there is a sense of grief. But, you know, can this be translated into enough political pressure on the government that they actually introduce new laws or they change the law or they make kind of legislative changes um, and they they take policy initiatives? So uh, the mood right now is of pressing forward with something that has that began, you know, in a fairly haphazard manner just reacting and 
responding to events uh, over the last two weeks. There has been incredible momentum uh, this week. Uh, That's clear from the reports we're hearing from India. But what about the government's response to the tragedy and from the demands from the protesters? How would you characterize how the government has responded? The government has responded in almost every instance, I mean, just atrociously, inadequately or inappropriately or every single politician who has spoken has put their foot in their mouth said something which you know made things worse you know they've made sexist remarks they've made you know uh, insensitive remarks you know i mean it's just such a mentality of sexism and of you know arrogance combined with the sense that you know they're not really accountable uh, to the people uh, that people from every party representatives have said all kinds of really really objectionable things now of course they're they're trying to you know make up for it by saying you know we will introduce new laws more stringent laws and we 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 are you know in sympathy with this family you know we it's and so on and so forth but you know if you if you go out there on the street the fact is there's so much security there's so many armed there are cops there are paramilitaries there are you know, armored vehicles. I mean, there's actually, there's more security than there are either people or or press in Jantar Mantar, the first place that I mentioned. And it seems kind of all preemptive, right? That that in case things get out of hand, you know, the first thing to do is lock the city down. The first thing to do is shut the traffic down, shut the roads down, not allow people to gather. What would the protesters say would entail a fundamental change in culture and attitudes toward women? in India? What what do they want the government to see doing right now? You know, actually, I must say the, the protesters are pretty disorganized and very heterogeneous, right? There's all kinds of people saying all kinds of things. There are people demanding, you know, that these particular rapists be punished in the most gruesome possible way. There are people who are talking about death penalty. There are others who are talking about you know, reviving the feminist movement and, you know, uh, mobilizing for gender justice more broadly. Some people are talking about changing uh, education around gender roles. You know, so it goes from the immediate and the very, very kind of momentary to long term. Ananya, what, what do you say to that? What would a fundamental change in culture and attitudes toward women entail? Look, the problem is humongous. Uh, there's there's no denying it. India, just to begin with, has a terrible sex ratio. You know, the numbers of men and women are are not the same. There's fewer women than there are men. So, you know, the violence against women actually begins in the fetus itself. The reason you have this kind of skewed sex ratio is because of sex-selective abortions. And it continues all the way down the line, Right. So it's very deep rooted. It sounds like what you're saying. I mean, does this it's, moment it's, of this of this brutal rape uh, and, and murder now uh, is that going to be the trigger that will change this? For whatever combination of reasons, it has triggered a widespread response, and I, you know, one can only hope that it 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 continues to reverberate to the point where political and legal change sets in. Ananya Vajpayee, an associate fellow with the Center for the Study of Developing Societies in New Delhi. Her latest book on India is called Righteous Republic. New Year's Eve this year is a little more low-key as well for many in Pakistan. 
In a place where millions use small motorbikes for transportation, the country has banned carrying passengers, riding without a muffler and popping wheelies. And those are just the no-nos for tonight. See, the Pakistani government has gone ban crazy recently in the name of national security. Especially egregious, say critics, has been the occasional ban on cell phone use, which they've done several times over the past year. Fahad Desmukh reports from Karachi. The first time the government imposed a cell phone ban was in March. It happened again in August. Rahman Malik, Pakistan's interior minister, was matter-of-fact about it when he was announcing the seventh cell phone ban of the year in November. I had no option but to shut down mobile phone services in Karachi and Quetta from 1 o'clock until late in the evening. That was during Muharram, a religious commemoration for Shia Muslims. In Pakistan, that has become a time of violent sectarian attacks. The ban lasted during daylight hours for three days. It was imposed on more than 40 cities and towns. Malik says cell phones are an intricate part of terrorist attacks. One, they use them to detonate bombs. Two, the terrorists communicate among themselves with them. And three, they communicate with the masterminds behind the attacks using mobile phones. But it's not just mobile phones that are prohibited. There's also been a ban on the use of motorcycles because terrorists have used them. The government banned YouTube, all of it, for three months after the release of the Innocence of Muslims video. The anti-Islam video sparked protests across the Muslim world, including in Pakistan. The ban was lifted for a few hours this Saturday, but it was reimposed after the government found that the offending video was still accessible on YouTube. Twitter and Facebook have also been banned at different times in previous years, and in 2011, the government attempted to ban a list of 1,700 phrases from text messages that were deemed vulgar, phrases like barface and cyberslimer. Farhan Hussain works for Bytes for All, that's spelled B-Y-T-E-S. It's a digital rights organization that has recently started a new campaign to challenge online censorship. Hussein believes there's a strategic pattern to the bans that have an impact. You have to see that the need to communicate becomes even more stronger in a society that has faced severe dictatorships over the past few decades, almost continuously. And by blocking channels of communication for civilians, uh, the democratic process becomes even more difficult to establish. So in a way, it's a way of sabotaging the entire system. Hussein says that although the right to information and expression are protected in Pakistan's constitution, the legal language is ambiguous enough to be exploited. These words are very, very loosely constructed and they can be interpreted and reinterpreted and misinterpreted ad nauseum. And that is what the government does as well. This is Dr. Nishat Fatma. She's a gynecologist and the wife of an opposition political leader. She's taking the government to court for violating her constitutional rights by banning mobile phone services. She says she had a patient who was pregnant who wanted to call her when she wasn't feeling well, but couldn't because of a cell phone ban. When I checked, I found that the fetus had died three days earlier. Maybe if the phone network was working at the time, I could have sent her to the hospital and treated her, and she would have been a mother now. Fatima says there's got to be a limit to what can be banned for the sake of security. Why don't you just put a ban on everything? Don't allow TVs. Someone could use a TV remote to detonate a bomb. Don't allow cars to run. Shut down everything. Stop people from breathing. Are the lives of the public so cheap? Fatima and others say these bans aren't just about security, but are about reinforcing the idea that the government has a right to control people's lives. 
for the world i'm fahad desmukh in karachi pakistan So right after the show, I've got to pick up the bubbly. That's my assigned contribution to the party I'll be hitting briefly tonight. But that's only one drink among many on the how to drink in the new year list. Go to Jamaica and grapes are not even part of the equation. There it's all about drinks made from the plant sorrel. Turks have been known to ring in the new year with salep, a brew made from mountain orchids. Our web editor Stephen Davey runs down other notable New Year's Eve quaffs from around the globe. You can check that out. And hey, add your own favorites at theworld.org. Now, as for that bubbly and its bubbles, there's a symbolic reason many people turn to champagne as well as caviar as must for their New Year's celebration. Nikki Russ Fetterman is a fourth-generation owner of Russ and Daughters, an appetizing shop that's been on New York's Lower East Side since 1914. They sell all kinds of smoked fish, bagels and dried fruits. Today is one of the shop's busiest days of the year, especially at the caviar counter. The reason why caviar and champagne is so classic for New Year's is because of those beads, you know, it's poppy symbolizing birth, rebirth, a new year. So that is why right now it is quite a bustling scene at Russian Daughters. Everyone's coming to get there. Caviar and also herring is is a a food that traditionally you eat for good luck. During New Year's, eating herring for New Year's good luck is a Northern European tradition, and some might say an acquired taste. I've got a jar of herring waiting for me in my fridge. We'll have more from Russ and Daughters tomorrow on our New Year's Day show. Still ahead, a Frenchman tries to keep Syrian spirits up in Damascus on PRI. The world is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, advancing access to healthcare through global philanthropy. Learn more in the Medtronic 2012 Philanthropy Report online at medtronicfoundation.org. And by Focus Features with the new film Promised Land, starring Matt Damon and John Krasinski, from the director of Goodwill Hunting, in theaters everywhere Friday. I'm Marco Werman, and this is the world. New Year's celebrations have come and gone in lots of places around the world already. In many of them, festivities with crowds and fireworks are the norm. But in at least one country, this kind of celebration is a new event. Burma, also known as Myanmar, welcomed the New Year for the first time with a public countdown to midnight and fireworks. Public gatherings were banned under half a century of military rule. So this outdoor event is another sign of the government easing its grip on everyday life. Organizers say tens of thousands of people headed out to central Rangoon to watch the fireworks. Koko Ong with the BBC's Burmese service was there earlier tonight and said many people were in a great mood and wearing festive hats. Oh, there is a band going on right in front of me. A large crowd, thousands and thousands of people, and people are still pouring in from different parts of the city. I can see uh, at least five very large LCD screens. And uh, the music band started uh, since the early uh, afternoon at about four five. This is the first time that they get up uh, to welcome the new year in this country. So it's it's very new to many people. 
also new is the very public fetting in Burma of former political prisoner Aung San Suu Kyi. A wool sweater made by Suu Kyi recently fetched a hefty price at auction, $49,000. She's said to have knitted the red, green, and blue v-neck almost 30 years ago when she was living in England with her family. Suu Kyi, who won the 1991 Nobel Peace Prize, has become Myanmar's biggest celebrity. A Burmese radio station won the sweater bid. The auction was organized by Suu Kyi's National League for Democracy party to raise money to help poor children through school. The Burmese military junta may not have been big fans of New Year's, but it is a Buddhist country. For years, Burmese have marched through the streets to celebrate Tazong Dang, a kind of Burmese Buddhist version of Christmas. Our own Bruce Wallace was there this year and put together a colorful slideshow. You can find that at theworld.org. Another notable event, a sad one, happened in the world of Buddhism in 2012. Beastie boy Adam Yauk died back in May from cancer. He was 47. Yauk was a big supporter of Tibetan Buddhists and the Free Tibet Movement. The Beastie Boys tune, Bodhisattva Vow, includes a sound of chanting monks. Voices of Buddhist Monks is sampled by Adam Yauk and the Beastie Boys on their 1994 album Ill Communication. Now, for some artists, the sound of monks might have remained a musical device on one album, but Adam Yauk was concerned enough and interested enough in the plight of Tibetans that that album became the starting point for his involvement in the Free Tibet Movement. Aaron Potts worked closely with Adam Yauk on many other projects that were focused on Tibet. Aaron is a director of Air Traffic Control, a consultancy that supports artists in their work promoting social justice issues. So, Aaron, you got to know Adam Yauk, if I uh, got it correctly, through the Tibet Freedom Concerts. What was your impression about his personal involvement in this cause? Why, why was he in the fight? I think his role in it was critical as to why he was involved. I think it had to, it stemmed from some personal experiences he had had while trekking in Nepal. And then I had met him just a few days later while I was living in Nepal. Mm. Um, and I remember him talking about those experiences and about, you know, just realizing, I think some of the fortune that he had. And by fortune, I mean, you know, privilege and that he felt these people were doing everything they could to, to live in freedom. And when you say um, privilege, you mean privilege as him as an American and growing up the way he did had this kind of almost responsibility? Absolutely. But also as a BC boy, I think he had this platform um, from which to talk about the plight of other people and to work on issues that he cared about. I think also that the nonviolence of the Tibetan people really struck a chord with him. Right. I mean, Buddhism was a central part of Adam Yauk's world. He never struck me, though, as dogmatically religious. But did his Buddhist spiritualism precede his political involvement with the Tibet movement? And how did they play off each other? I think they were intertwined with one another. I think that his, I mean, the song that he wrote on the album, Bodhisattva Vow, I mean, that's a deeply religious concept. And on that same album, he had lyrics about how he hoped and prayed someday he'd visit on a free Tibet. So I think there was the political and there was the more spiritual aspects just completely wrapped around each other and, and pushing all of it forward. I've seen a, a number of interviews with Adam Yauk when he was alive, and, and he seemed to indicate that his belief was that music could really change things in Tibet. But 
clearly it hasn't uh, and hadn't while he was alive. Why wasn't that a discouragement to him? I think he is an idealist in the good senses of the word, that he believed deeply, didn't need immediate proof of change. He knew change was going to come. Um, and unfortunately, not in his lifetime, but certainly in his daughter's lifetime. Mm. Adam was married to a Tibetan woman, Dechen Wangdu. Did they have mm-hmm. similar views about how to engage as activists on Tibet? Is she still waging a fight? Yeah. I mean, her family is deeply involved in the Tibet movement. She was born in America, but grew up as an as a Tibetan activist. You've undoubtedly been following the news from Tibet uh, this year. There's been a terrible spike in self-immolations. I guess it really shows a desperation for many Tibetans about the situation they're in. Ultimately, what do you think the legacy of Adam Yauk will be for this movement? I think that Adam really helped jumpstart a youth movement for Tibet that will ultimately be uh, what is successful in freeing it uh, and I think that one of the things that is most important about his work is just how funny he was. Give and us an example. I, think I mean, wh- wh- where did uh, Adam Yauch's humor come into play he... in, a, in a movement that really doesn't kind of make you think of <laughs> funny stuff? I know. Everything was a joke. You know, the BC Boys loved uniforms and disguises. Mm. He, he loved fake mustaches um, and mullet wigs. Um, is there a lesson he... in that for a, a, an activist movement? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things that Yauk showed us is that through joy and laughter, we can also break through these injustices. I laughed as hard as I worked, and we were working really hard. I think never before in the history of the world has so much fun been had uh, while doing activism and movement building and trying to fight injustice. I think that's a great testament to who he was and a great legacy that he leaves for those of us who are still fighting the fight, whether it's for Tibet or other places and peoples. Aaron Potts, director of the consultancy Air Traffic Control, speaking with us from San Francisco about the legacy of Beastie Boy Adam Yauk, who died this year, a big loss to music and evidently for the free Tibet movement. Aaron, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. hard to hear, but this is the Beastie Boys track, The Update, in which Adam Yauch hopes to return someday to a free Tibet. You can watch highlights from the 1999 Tibetan Freedom Concert at theworld.org. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, Russian theater comes to Israel and leaves its mark. Sets are very elaborate and they're very big and they're very, uh, the visual aspect of the theater is very, very important. So, you know, the things that we know about theater is less evolved than what they know about the theater. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, demonstrating commitment to global economic, social, and environmental stewardship. Learn more in the 2012 Medtronic Corporate Citizenship Report, online at Medtronic.com. 
I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. As we head into the new year, there isn't a whole lot to celebrate in Syria, even in the country's capital. Amateur video posted online today shows civilians desperately fleeing what appear to be airstrikes on the outskirts of Damascus. Anti-regime activists say more than 45,000 people have been killed since the uprising against President Bashar al-Assad began in March 2011. The fighting has evolved into a full-scale civil war with scores of armed groups across the country fighting the regime. Rebels have made gains in recent months, but few expect the war is going to end soon. Naturally, most expats have left the country, but a few remain. Among them is Jean-Pierre Dutillon. Among other activities, the Frenchman also owns a nightclub and lounge. Not only does Dutillon refuse to leave the country, he's keeping his place open for business, and he's on the line with us from Damascus. So uh, what are you offering at your nightclub, Pure Lounge, tonight for New Year's Eve? Uh, today, you have to understand, like most of the bourgeoisie and the elite of Damascus left the country, so definitely we adapt our offers. So uh, for $25, you have an open bar, and for something like 15 bucks, you can have like four alcoholic drinks. We have a DJ like every night, and we brought some special champagne bottles and stuff like that. Mm. So you'll be heading into work shortly. Um, if it's not the elites who you expect exclusively at Pure Lounge tonight, who will be there? Uh, I will tell you something, like I'm always uh, answering the same thing. Uh, the people who are suffering during the daytime are the same who are going out at night to have fun. We don't talk about two different kinds of population. Of course, the people who are going out, they are mostly living in the downtown or in suburbs who are still now not so much suffering from the attacks and from the missiles and from the bombings. But uh, people who are going out, they are trying to, to try to escape from the reality. And they are trying to uh, send the message that they are still alive. So kind of having a New Year's Eve party is not kind of contradictory to what's happening in Syria right now for many of your clients, it sounds like. I will tell you something, like uh, the people who are coming tonight, they are mostly like workers, employees, middle-class people. So you can't deny them the right of going out and having fun. Like they, they suffered so much this year. So some people they are criticizing the fact that people are going out and they are like, uh, we all have to suffer and to stay at home. But at the end of the day, it's not a solution. Because like we talk about a New Year Eve party, it's like five, six hours maximum. So during five hours, in one month, or maybe for some of them in one year, it's their right to decide, like, uh, it's enough pain, and it's time just, like, to see each other, to feel like they're alive, and to have fun. Aren't people afraid to stay out late these days in Damascus? I mean, especially tonight, you want to stay up past midnight, don't you? I will tell you something, like, we will be open at midnight, and we will celebrate the New Year at midnight, and people who are going out, they are really courageous, because, like, they have a lot of checkpoints, you have sometimes some fights uh, on the road, so they are really taking the risk of getting hurt, of maybe being killed, but at the end of the day, it's not the solution to stay at home, because you can imagine the fact of having a lack of fuel, of electricity, maybe uh, losing your job, and if you have to stay at home and don't have the right event to go out, people, they will go crazy. Right. So I've got to ask you, Jean-Pierre, what keeps you going? I mean, you have to go to Pure Lounge every night and open it up and stay till the last customers leave. I mean, you're taking a pretty big risk there yourself. 
I will tell you something, like uh, we opened the lounge something 10 months ago, 11 months ago, so it was already the crisis. Honestly speaking, I didn't make cash out of it. If we talk about the investment and the assets we put at the beginning, no way in hell with what we're doing per month we're going to get back uh, the cash uh, we put in this place. I'm working with many media, and this is lately like uh, one of my main jobs, but this lounge is for me a symbol. Like I'm sure people are really glad to have a place they find open every single night, offering them the feeling like things are still normal and when everything around you is becoming a tragedy and everything is becoming complicated and a drama having a place that you feel like life is still normal there it's priceless Jean-Pierre Dutillon who runs a nightclub in Damascus called Pure Lounge he'll be live tweeting the ringing in of the new year there you can see his tweets and join the conversation at theworld.org Jean-Pierre very nice to speak with you thanks for your time it's always a pleasure take care of yourself as things get worse in Syria, more and more refugees are trying to escape the conflict. Some have crossed into Turkey, others have gone to Lebanon. The largest number of Syrian refugees are in refugee camps in the neighboring kingdom of Jordan. But as the world's Matthew Bell found, not all refugees are being accepted there with open arms. About 250,000 people from Syria have crossed the border into Jordan to seek refuge, and many of them begin their new lives in exile here at the Zatari refugee camp. It's near Jordan's northern border with Syria. Eleven-year-old Yasmin speaks with me in a chilly warehouse, temporary shelter for new arrivals. She says she escaped Damascus with her father and one brother. Two of her brothers stayed behind with their mother, she says, to take care of their grandmother, who's old and sick. A 30-year-old teacher from the Syrian city of Daraa just arrived here. She left Syria with her husband and some neighbors. It took them nearly 24 hours of walking and driving to get to the border, and they were terrified of being gunned down on the way. It's a terrible feeling, leaving behind your home, your land, your job, everything. But we thank God for arriving here in the camp where there's security. And we also thank the government of Jordan. Zatari camp is home to about 44,000 people from Syria. Most live in tents. They get access to water, food, and medical care from aid groups and donations. A Jordanian government charity runs the camp. On the day I visit, nearly 700 people arrive. But not all refugees are welcome. Displaced Palestinians from Syria are not taken in here. Speaking with me in an immaculately clean tent over coffee and endless cigarettes, a 23-year-old construction worker will only give his name as Mohammed. He says he left the Yarmouk refugee camp in Damascus about two months ago because the place was getting violent and food was hard to find. He says his mother is Syrian, his father Palestinian. Mohammed says the Jordanians are turning people back at the border if they have ID cards that say they're Palestinian. Lucky for him, he has a Syrian ID. Mohammed says his uncle, a Palestinian from Damascus, was turned away at the border five times. When Palestinians from Syria are able to cross the border into Jordan, they're usually sent to a separate camp called Cyber City. This camp is really a run-down, six-story dormitory. It's in an industrial zone outside the city of Ramtha, next to the Syrian border, and it's where I met 55-year-old Ahmed Ibrahim Dalul, 
He got out of the Syrian capital with his wife and their five kids about six weeks ago. With his four-year-old son in his lap, Dalul explains that he's happy to be here, away from the fighting in Syria, but he says it's also frustrating. Dalul is registered as a Palestinian refugee, even though he was born in Syria. So are his kids. But his wife is Syrian. Now she's staying with relatives elsewhere in Jordan, while Dalul and the children live in this single room. They're not allowed to leave the camp for any length of time, he says, and his wife cannot move in with them permanently. It's a difficult situation, he says. And not only for his family. Jordan is wary of large numbers of Palestinians resettling here. That's due in part to leftover bitterness from the bloody conflict between Palestinian militants and the Jordanian government more than 40 years ago. Amman-based journalist Daoud Kutab says Jordan's treatment of these new Palestinian refugees from Syria is about politics in Jordan, where more than half the population is made up of Jordanians of Palestinian descent. The Jordanian-Palestinian relations has improved tremendously over the past years, but there still remains uh, worry and suspicion. As a result, uh, most officials in Jordan are very careful about any demographic changes that can tip the, the balance between East Bank Jordanians and Jordanians of Palestinian origin. Since the start of the uprising in Syria, about 2,000 Palestinians have managed to cross into Jordan, but these days it's very difficult for Palestinian refugees to get in. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell, Amman. Two decades ago, Russians flooded into Israel as refugees. A million Soviets moved to the Jewish state after the Iron Curtain rose 20 years ago. And the country is now home to one of the world's largest Russian-speaking communities outside the former Soviet Union. Their story is largely one of success. Soviet immigrants have reached some of the highest seats in the Israeli government. They've also made an indelible mark on the country's cultural scene. Here's Daniel Estrin in Tel Aviv with the story of how a troupe of Russian directors founded one of Israel's most celebrated theaters. This is what's currently playing at Gesher Theater, and critics are raving about it. It's an adaptation of a classic Israeli novel, A Pigeon and a Boy, about a romance during the 1948 Arab-Israeli War. The stage is on a steep tilt. Actors perform vignettes framed by flowing beige drapes. The soundtrack is evocative. There's an elaborate theatricality at Gesher that you don't see on many other stages in Israel. There's a long heritage of theater in Russia that we don't have in Israel. Yuval Yanai is an Israeli actor. The sets are very elaborate and they're very big and they're very... Uh, the visual aspect of the theater is very, very important. So, you know, the things that we know about theater is... It's less evolved than what they know about the theater. Russian theater, of course, has a long and storied history, like Chekhov and Pushkin. That tradition found its way to Israel 20 years ago. Theater director Lena Krenlin says as the Soviet Union was collapsing, she and a group of Jewish theater directors sat in her kitchen in Moscow and plotted their escape. I don't think we wanted to come to Israel. I think we wanted to leave Russia. Like you, you, you want to go out of the prison. You know, it was the feeling. We wanted the fresh air. 
we thought probably we will come to Israel, we will establish some theater, and we will live like uh, kings. That's not exactly how things turned out. She and the group of directors and actors all moved to Israel together. As they were preparing for their first show in 1991, the Gulf War broke out. Iraqi scuds rained down on Tel Aviv in the middle of rehearsals. They dodged in and out of a bomb shelter wearing gas masks. Not a very encouraging start to their new lives. But the war ended just in time for their debut. We started with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead by Tom Stoppard. It was a very strange decision because everybody told us you have to start from the play about something, you know, Russian emigrants. It was it's supposed to be very familiar, very miserable, very simple. And we started from, I think, the most complicated play in the world. They performed it entirely in Russian. Israeli audiences listened to a Hebrew translation through headsets, but they loved it. One newspaper critic hailed Gesher's debut as the Russian miracle of Israeli theater. They kept performing in Russian, and a few years later, they started doing Hebrew versions on alternating nights. They still didn't have a firm grasp of Hebrew. They rehearsed from scripts transliterated into Cyrillic characters. Backstage, it feels like you're in Moscow. Stagehands and directors chat in Russian, and the costume boxes are all labeled in Russian, too. On stage, though, it's somewhere in between Moscow and Tel Aviv. Today, all of Gesher's plays are in Hebrew, with Russian and English supertitles projected on a screen above the stage. Some of the actors speak Hebrew in thick Russian accents, but half of the cast doesn't speak a word of Russian, and neither does most of the audience. Would you consider this, your, your theater, a Russian theater or an Israeli theater? When we are asked who you are, we're starting to think. Probably we are the bridge, you know, our theater. The name of the theater is Bridge. Gesher is Hebrew for bridge. One side of the bridge we're in Russia, and we passed this bridge slowly, slowly, and I think now we're close to another side. Gesher is hailed as one of Israel's greatest theaters. Now Gesher's artistic staff has decided to reveal some of its secrets. It's planning to launch a school for aspiring Israeli actors and directors. For The World, I'm Daniel Estrin, Tel Aviv. Pictures from the Russian-Israeli production of A Pigeon and a Boy playing at the Gersher Theater. We have a slideshow at theworld.org. The choice of a capital says a lot about a place. After the American Revolution, most of the 13 colonies moved their capitals inland, away from the coast. It was a symbolic move, showing independence from the former colonial ruler and Europe as a whole, and it's been copied by many nations in Africa as they've gained independence. For today's GeoQuiz, we're looking for the latest African nation to create a capital from the ground up. Most of this nation lies on the mainland of Africa, sandwiched between Cameroon and Gabon. The capital has been Malabo, located on a large island off the coast of Cameroon. This is where much of the nation's oil wealth can be found, and it's oil money that's funding the new capital. Here's one more hint. It's the only country in Africa that has Spanish as an official language. So where are we? Hasta pronto. We're back in a few with the answer.
This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. To Central Africa now to answer today's geo-quiz. We were looking for a new capital in the middle of nowhere. It's actually in the middle of an equatorial jungle, and that pretty much defines much of the territory of this nation. Well, the nation is Equatorial Guinea, and the new capital is to be called Oyala. The BBC's Stephen Sacker was there recently. Is that a made-up name, Oyala, Stephen? No, Oyala is actually the name of a tiny village. I would say a population no more than a couple of hundred people deep in the interior, in the jungle of this tiny West Central African nation of Equatorial Guinea. Now, for years, this village has produced nothing more than just a few agricultural products, but now it is the home of a massive construction site as President Teodoro Obiang of Equatorial Guinea has decided that should be the location for his new administrative capital city with a projected population of up to 200,000, which he believes he can get built by the year 2020. So construction is underway uh, on this capital, this new capital, Ayala. What was it like kind of emerging from the jungles of, of Equatorial Guinea into this kind of new sparkling construction site? Well, it is extraordinary. It sort of feels a bit like, uh, you know, arriving in Xanadu or some other mythical place because the jungle is, of course, extremely dense. The green canopy envelops you. The only clue that you are heading somewhere important is that the Chinese have built a very expensive, almost but not quite completed highway from the Atlantic coast deep into the interior. So you go down this road and you're thinking to yourself, why on earth does this highway exist? Because it doesn't seem to lead anywhere. And then you go around a final bend and you see the first of the vast construction sites. Bulldozers have just torn out vast numbers of hardwood trees, and in their place, uh, the first concrete and steel buildings have gone up. You know, I saw a vast luxury hotel, convention center, and theater complex, which is almost completed. We had a championship golf course. Um, President Obiang has often been motivated by oil profits. Is, is this new capital linked in any way to this quest for millions in oil revenue? Well, you can't disconnect it from the oil revenue. I don't think the, the reason for building the capital has anything to do with any, any sort of uh, new discovery of oil in the interior. Far from it. The, the reason that he can afford to build it, he has so much money coming in from the oil revenues. The country is now the third biggest producer of oil and gas in sub-Saharan Africa. With a tiny population, that means uh, that the, the revenues can be spent by the president on what one can only really describe as vanity projects. Are any of those oil revenues trickling down to the population in Equatorial Guinea? That is, as you can imagine, another question that I looked at very closely and indeed asked the president about. The fact is, if you look at the latest reports from UN agencies, from the World Bank, most equatorial Ghanaians are living in poverty. More than half of the people are living on $2 a day or less. Uh, most of the population does not have access to clean drinking water. Uh, the figures on infant mortality are terrible. And poverty is endemic across the country. Now, that should not be the case, given the vast natural resources that this tiny country can call upon. And we know from investigations that have been launched in the United States through the Department of Justice and uh, by the French government in Paris, we know that the family of President Obiang 
possesses vast wealth in terms of assets, including property, including luxury limousines, also bizarrely, including a collection of Michael Jackson memorabilia. But, you know, you can't help thinking to yourself as you wander around these sites and the thousands of workers, laborers, many of them not from Equatorial Guinea, but drawn from all over the world because of the high wages that are being paid to uh, the laborers, but more particularly to the designers, the architects and the construction executives. Uh, you wonder to yourself, what can it feel like to be a resident of a village in Equatorial Guinea with no clean water, living on a dollar or so a day, and watching this construction going on around you. It must be the most bizarre and indeed frustrating of experiences for so many of the people in that country. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there. The BBC's Stephen Sacker just back from Oyala in Equatorial Guinea. The answer to today's joke was, Stephen, thank you. You're most welcome, Marco. I love this final story today, though the residents of Equatorial Guinea may never be able to appreciate it. It's the perfect soundtrack for the final hours of 2012 that are quickly melting away. Let me explain. Of all the songs that have come out this year, this one is the coolest. It's called Blue Ice. Swedish indie rocker Shout Out Louds released it in the final days of 2012. It's the first single the band's recorded in three years. It'll sound better than this when the full album is out next year. It sounds scratchy because to build up hype for the release, the band reached out to Stockholm ad agency TBWA to help promote it. The agency riffed off the title, Blue Ice, and had the radical thought, let's make a record out of ice. Scientists told the agency, impossible. So TBWA did their own experiments, then came up with 10 press kits for select media and fans. In it, you'll find a silicon mold and a bottle of distilled water, and these instructions. Unscrew the cap of the bottle. Pour the enclosed water into the mold, aiming at the center. Use approximately half the bottle, maybe a little more. Put the mold in your freezer and keep it there for no less than six hours. Once it's out of the freezer, the lifespan of the single begins quickly to melt away. The detail in the grooves is the first to go. It does skip a bit and the water could screw up your turntable. Still, it's a wonderful concept, especially for a song about fading love, which Blue Ice is. Audiophiles talk about how record players capture a warmth unavailable with compact discs. Shout Out Louds may have proven them wrong with what is a one-hit wonder. We've got the fascinating video so you can see this in action at theworld.org. We now melt away into the new year and wish you a prosperous and healthy 2013. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. Thank you for tuning in. You The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI and WGBH, supported in part by Nan and Bill Harris, committed to supporting objective, unbiased reporting on national and international issues.
by the Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs and their innovations to solve the world's most pressing problems at skoll.org. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs by the Annenberg Foundation and by the PRI Trust for Innovation, which enables informed risk-taking in the creation of new content for public radio. Donors to the Trust include Marguerite Steed Hoffman, the Tagney Jones Family Fund, and the Rose Family Fund. PRI Public Radio International.